0: Welcome to the Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. So if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6. Why don't you open there with me? Turn our attention to God's word in Ephesians 6. And as you're turning there, I'm going to invite my friend Damien's going to come up to lead us in the reading of God's Word this morning. So again, Ephesians chapter 6. Once you turn there, if you would stand with Damien and I for the reading of God's Word. We'll get into it. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we're here for you this morning. We've gathered in this place, um, hopefully for more than just tradition, but hopefully for an authentic desire here, God. We're here because you say that if we seek you, we will find you, and we're here to do that together this morning, to both seek and find you, your word, your truth, your presence your direction for our lives. And so we submit ourselves this morning to your word and to what your spirit wants to do in this time and what you want to speak to us. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would speak to us, that you would work in our hearts, um, challenge us, grow us, surprise us even with who you are this morning. Uh, Lord, we just want to take a minute to pray for our brother Jimmy. Jimmy who's over in South Korea right now, serving you. We just pray a blessing over him, that your presence would be with him, that you'd strengthen him, and that you would give them favor in their work there. And so, God, in all these different things, we just submit our desire to you, and we ask, God, would you meet us with what we need? And we pray for that now in this moment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Okay. Were you surprised to say turn to Ephesians 6? I don't know if you were or not, but we're back. Uh, We have made our way back to our kind of chapter-by-chapter flow through the book of Ephesians after a short detour, just a little vacation. We took a little scenic route off the main highway of Ephesians. Uh, After Paul in Ephesians 5, he led us there, all right? He started talking about things like the church and Jesus, and so we just spent four weeks exploring what that means to be soulless in Christ and who we are as a church, and now we're back here in Ephesians chapter 6. We've come to the last chapter of this book that we have been studying for the better part of this this year. We began a study through the book of Ephesians on the first week, the first Sunday of February, and we're here in chapter 6, and based on the content ahead of us, we will likely be here into the holiday season. We, sh- we should be done before at least December, okay? The latest, December, we'll say that. That's kind. Um, as we've been going through Ephesians, we have been exploring the central theme of what it means to be in Christ. This is Paul's main emphasis in this book for the church at Ephesus and even a church like ours, a young church that Paul has a pastoral heart towards. He's calling and encouraging them to understand and to um, explore and live out of all the implications of life in Christ. In Christ. To be in Jesus is the big idea. Not just that Jesus is has come for us, and now we need to do some things for him. But the depth of relationship and intimacy that God has brought about in our lives through Christ is one of union and oneness to where we're in him, and he is in us, and Paul is unpacking this. He wants us to really get it. Now, if you could break off the the book of Ephesians into two parts, there's two aspects of being in Christ in the book of Ephesians. Chapters one through three deals with what it means to be seated in Christ. Like what it means to be through the, the work of the gospel, through faith and trust in Christ, we are not just rescued from sin and reconciled to God, but we are repositioned. We're seated in a new spot. We get a new seat at the table and we are seated in a really honorable spot, a place that we would all, if we really understood, we'd all rejoice in to know what it means to be seated in Christ. And that's really chapters one through three, like Paul, we tend to use a saying in our culture, like, don't just sit there, do something, right? Do something, get up and do something. Well, Paul, for the first three chapters, is like, don't do anything, just sit there. Just be seated, just just saturate and marinate on and be rooted in what it actually means to be in Christ. Uh, Paul doesn't want to get us backwards in our order of thinking. The Christian life is not is not an identity and not this position to be lived into. Like I got to work my way, I got to attend church enough, I got to do these things, I got to stop the bad things and do the good things in order to arrive in Jesus. Paul's like, no, don't think that way. That's backwards thinking. You see the Christian faith doesn't start with imperatives. It starts with indicatives. It starts with realities, facts of the matter through the work of Christ. It's a position to live from. So he starts with with chapters 1 through 3 Um, really just a robust explanation of what it means to be in Christ. And then he makes a a shift in chapter 4, and he begins to describe what it looks like to walk in Christ, to live from that position that we are securely rooted in. You could argue that the second half of chapter 6 is what it means to stand in Christ, and we'll get there and talk about spiritual warfare. But for now, we're in this chunk of verses here, really chapter 4 through the the. The entire like half of chapter six that deals with walking in Jesus, walking out what we're rooted in. What's really interesting about this section that we're specifically and as we zoom in a little bit more. Is as Paul is beginning to describe the work of God in our lives to change how we live and walk. Uh, Paul gets like right into personal private stuff of our lives he's like all up in our face he's all up in our business here like what we see about our our transformation as as, as followers of Jesus as we're being formed as we follow him it's like God is not so much just concerned with like who we are in society like that's important okay like who you are in society does matter Um, but, but God is mostly concerned with who we really are the truth of who we are and let me say this and I think the scriptures would agree that there's not really any more true of a test of who you really are than who you are in your most private relationships. Like, that's who you really are. If there's one thing to be like, I'm a Christian, I'm a godly man in public in society, and here I am the way I deal with the, the, you know, fellow shoppers at Publix, you know? But like, it's another thing to, for Paul to be like, okay, but let's talk about the function and the details of your marriage. And the kind of husband or wife you are behind closed doors. Let's talk about, he'll talk about next week, like your vocation. And how you do your work. And how how you relate to your coworkers. And then here in chapter 6, Paul's like, let's talk about family dynamics. Ouch, right? Just like the thought of it. There's something that's there's like a nerve ending there just on the topic of, of family. Specifically in this section, Paul is speaking about the relationship between children and their parents. Uh, the word children there in verse 1, uh, it, it, the Greek word uh, that's used there for children denotes those that are still dependent on their parents that have not yet been recognized as adults, by culture and by the family. And I'm just going to let you pray about that and figure out what that means for you and your life and your 40-year-old that still lives with you. Just kidding. But, like, the word here denotes someone who's still dependent on their parent. So it's the relationship between the dependent and the parent. Uh, and so this is the big idea of of our passage this morning. You can jot this down. This is what, what you know, we're just kind of going through the scriptures here and, and looking at the scriptures and doing our best to really seek to see how Jesus Uh, would apply this to our lives, and this section is about parenting in Christ. This is what we get to. Parenting, the parenting relationship. Um, Let's just start off with a couple, because we're talking about parenting today. Hi, guys. Welcome to church. Let's talk about parenting, okay? When we get to the topic of parenting, some of you guys immediately just disconnected from the message because you're not a parent, and I want to pull you right back in and say this has extreme relevance to every one of us. In this room, because each of us had parents, each of us are children, each of us likely will be parents, most of us. Nonetheless, whatever your connection to this relationship is, whatever season of life you you might find yourself in, I think we can all agree with these starting realities. First thing I want to talk about is this reality that the parenting relationship is hard. Could we start there? Someone just say amen, okay? Parenting is hard. What we're about to get into here. Let me even expound that. The parenting relationship of a children, of children to their parents and parents to their children is not an easy relationship. It's hard to be a parent, and it's hard to be parented. I don't think we talk about that enough. It's hard to be a parent, and let me say this, it's hard to be a child. This is a hard thing, okay? Um, I want to also say this, that parenting and the parenting relationship is hard for everyone. Despite what Instagram might show you. Do you know what I'm saying? By the way, that's like their 20th version of that video. You know that, right? That there's a whole deleted version, okay, without the filters, where the kids are not as nice as they were in that 20th take, you know? Parenting is hard for everyone. Some of us are better at hiding it. Some of us, some of us have just different dynamics that aren't as visible. Can we say this? But parenting is just hard. Why? Because we're talking about people, humans. It's a hard thing to navigate. Let's also talk about this. Parenting is also complex. The parenting relationship between a parent and their kids and kids and their parents, um, we're talking about a complex thing, again, because we're dealing with humans. And humans are not simple beings. Parents are not simple individuals. Kids are not simple individuals. We are deeply complex individuals made in the image of God, yet each of us, we have our own differences. I have three kids, and I could take two of them and just as an example of this and just say just within two of my three kids, I can say there is a world of complexity to the human being. One of my children is, is as far left as you could go. The other is as far our right. Not like politically, but like, <laughs> but like generally maybe. But like I'm talking like universes apart. In their makeup and their identity, what and how many of us notice as parents like what one thing that might quote work for one kid doesn't work for the other? And one style and, and, and one response that might be needed, one tone that's necessary for one is is actually destructive to the other. We're complex beings. We're complex parents. You know, the parenting relationship is this relationship that's not just hard, it's complex. Like, we bring all of our brokenness into this thing called parenting. And we're just like, God, this is our prayer. God, just give grace. Like, not just grace for me, but grace on this whole thing. Just just pour your grace upon this. It's complex. And then as we go a little deeper here, like, let's be real. When we talk about the parenting relationship, we're talking about something that's painful. I just wanna call some of these things out before we just start talking about how to be a good parent. I wanna recognize that in this room with a variety of experiences, parent or child, or or a little bit of both, we're talking about something painful even. Something that because of the interpersonal reality of it is filled with, can be filled with great. um, Maybe you're a parent in here and your time is done and you're the empty nester now and maybe there's some regret, some guilt. Maybe you're the person that's in this room and you're like, I'm not a parent yet, but, you know, I'll pay attention to this message so that I can get some stuff out of it to be a good parent one day. And I just want to say, like, you're not going to remember anything from this message, okay? (laughs) Like, that's cute and all. (laughs) But, like, maybe what you really need to do is, like, come to Jesus with the hurt and pain you've experienced from your parents. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe there's, there's pain you've avoided. Maybe there's pain beneath the surface. Maybe there's pain that just needs to be verbalized. But we're talking about what we see in Scripture. Like the family dynamic is one of the most immediate, immediate and profound arenas of life that's been affected by the fall. That pain tends to exist. That complexity exists. And it's also difficult. But regardless of of parenting, the parenting relationship being those three things, hard, complex, and painful. I just think about the parents in the room, the couples in the room that are desiring to be parents and are walking with God through seasons of not being able to do that. There's so many layers to this. But I want to remind us that though parenting is all of these things, it's also included. Included. It's hard, it's complex, it's painful. And does it surprise you that things that are hard, complex, and, 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 and painful, that those things are included in our relationship with God? We don't tend to think that way, do we? Like, I want what's easy, what's simple, and what's, what's happy to be included in my relationship with God. But to follow Jesus is to bring all that we are and all that we have into the relationship. And he invites that, he brings that. He says, says come to me, all you who are weary. The parenting relationship is is certainly included in God's design of the created order. It's included. It's not an accident. It's not an afterthought. It's not a fallout to the sin in the world. This was God's vision from the beginning. Healthy individuals centered around God that are producing healthy families centered around God to bring beauty and and goodness and God's glory to the world. The the result of that is obviously human flourishing. Uh, But I love here in Ephesians 6 the reminder that parenting that relationship is always in, is also included listen in the story of redemption it's included in the in god's design of the created order but the parenting relationship is not excluded from the good news of what jesus has come to redeem and restore it's included in his work god didn't just use a family to bring the work of salvation into the world but god promised even i don't know if you know this this is the last scripture in the Old Testament, okay? So before you have this like big period of no prophets, no revelation from God, nothing until uh, John the Baptist comes on the scene in the spirit of Elijah. The last scripture in the Old Testament was all, it's all about promises and foreshadowing. It's like, it's all about expectation. Like Jesus is coming and here's, the Messiah is gonna bring these things. Here's the last verse of the Old Testament. It says that, that one will come in the spirit of Elijah and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. This is God speaking to his people, describing the real, the real negative future that's ahead of them as they continue to destroy the beauty that God's created in one another, um, in the oppressed. And he's describing the 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 real curses that come as a result of sin, but he's also speaking to a blessing that's going to come through the Messiah. And that blessing is not just going to turn the hearts of people towards God. That's the first thing. That's what repentance means, to turn away and to turn towards. But through Christ, God will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. And God will restore the relationship between a child and their parent. Like this is included in the work that Jesus wants to do in our lives. It might not look the same. We might, some of you might be like, my father's no longer here. I've never spoken to my father, but maybe there's still a turning work that God wants to do in your heart. For others of you, you're in the throes of parenting. Y- you are. You're, as we say, in it. You're in it. You're, or, or some of you are soon to be in it, okay? But nonetheless, God has a promise work that he wants to do in our hearts in this way. That's why it's it's good news that we could say that there's such a thing as parenting in Christ. <laughs> there's more than just the pain. There's more than just the hard there's more than just the complexity. There is great promises that God is going to restore our hearts and he's going to restore this relationship. And that's what we have here in these just four verses we read. We have a vision for how Christ is restoring us as parents and he's restoring that relationship. He, he, uh, Paul here in this passage gives some really helpful things. You can jot these down. These are the four G's that we're going to get into. In this section of scripture... Here's what Paul gives. Paul gives a goal to pursue in Christ as parents, a goal to pursue. So I'm a parent in Christ. What's my goal? Then he gives a gap that we want to avoid in Christ in our parenting. He then gives a guide to employ in our parenting. Here's some some things to employ in your parenting. And Paul, lastly, will give us a gospel to trust in, in our parenting. And I just want to remind us about the, as I get into this too, like, The whole point about um, the parenting relationship being complex, it's more complex for one sermon. We know this, right? Okay. So yet you know me. I'm going to be like, I'm going to fit all the complexity into one message, and we'll be out of here by 3 p.m. So I'm going to do my best not to do that. 2 p.m., just kidding. All right, I'm going to do my best to simplify this and encourage you. I'm going to mention some resources. In the past we've done, uh, as a church, we've had a couple different parenting small groups and courses through the Intentional. Uh, the Intentional Parenting uh, book and course. That's a great resource that walks in detail through a lot of these things. And so I am i am not uh, seeking to cover the whole extent of the parenting relationship today. Just gonna go through just a couple Gs, all right? What up, G? We're gonna go through some Gs. Okay, I'm sorry, sorry about that last comment. Okay, um, let's go through each of these here in this passage. Okay, the first one that Paul gives us as we are being restored in Christ in our parenting relationships is Paul gives us a goal to pursue as parents. He starts with a goal that we are to pursue. And Paul says this. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. I mean, that's like the easiest amen ever. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on, let's try that again. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Amen. Okay. All right. Notice this. For this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. I've tried quoting that to my kids before. Like, hey, if you want it to go well with you, (laughs) if you want to live long and prosper, okay, you're going to want to obey. All right. Paul begins by giving us a vision of what our desire is as parents to see in the hearts and in the lives of our kids. We want to see this thing he calls obedience. We need to point out here that Paul is is obviously commanding something that's to be practiced. It's not naturally pursued. Okay, Paul doesn't say, children, disobey your parents, like try it out for once. No, Paul's like assuming the natural tendency as creatures is is self-autonomy, and and it's this tendency to kind of go my own way and, and not trust any authority, and there's sometimes really good reason for that, unfortunately. Um, but Paul is speaking to the nature of children and the call of parents, the, the desire that every parent has for their kids to, notice this again, obey your parents and the Lord. Now, Paul is speaking about here something so much deeper than mere behavioral obedience as a goal. Like, I don't know about you, like, that's just, I was a youth pastor long enough to say, like, my goal is not merely well-behaved kids, Let me back up and say, not merely, like well-behaved, I would love that, okay? As I have three of them, like well-behaved would be awesome. But Paul's speaking here to something so much greater and grander and even deeper than just behavioral obedience. Paul isn't speaking here about compliance or obedience for the sake of compliance. He's speaking about what we'll call spiritual obedience. This is really interesting. There's something that could be said, I guess, about You know, you need to teach your kids to obey. You want them to obey because if they can learn to obey your authority, then they'll learn to obey general authority and and they'll be hopefully more likely to obey God's authority. I think there probably is something there. But that's not what Paul is saying. And I want to point out the most important part of this, of what Paul is is giving us as a vision in our parenting. The most important thing is who Paul is speaking to, he's talking to kids. Isn't that cool? Paul, in the middle of his sermon to this church, is like, "All right, parents, be quiet for a second. Children, let's talk." It's like the classic, like Baptist church thing where they come up to the front and you have the pastor do a little Bible study for them. You know, I love this. Paul is speaking to children who he calls. Let me let me remind you: in chapter one, verse one, Paul's writing this letter to the saints. So let's put this together. Ephesians one, Paul's like, "Hey, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle. I'm, I you know I love you, church, and I'm writing." To the saints, then he says, children. Isn't that cool? What's the implication? The children aren't any less a part of the family of God than the adults. The children are the saints of God. We got to witness and celebrate a couple of baptisms of some youth a couple weeks ago. This is what we believe, what we celebrate. If King Josiah can lead a nation at eight years old, an eight-year-old can follow Jesus. And Jesus says, let the children come to me. Don't forbid them. but lead them to know me and follow me. Paul, he's not speaking to parents here. He's speaking to children. And the vision he's giving them, and I want you to see this. This is so much more than just like get your kids to obey. This is not that. Paul is calling these children in the Lord, these children that are in the church at Ephesus, to obey their parents, but notice this, with a confidence in what God's word says about it. The context here is is the Ten Commandments. This is the Fifth Commandment. And this was a a, a commandment that wasn't, we tend to think very individually about the commandments, like what I need to do. But the commandments were really written for a community of people to to be a witness to the watching world of what it looks like to live to the glory of God in a way that blesses everyone around you. Uh, What the commandments are about is like the healthy way to be human. When God says, don't have any other idols before me, he's not like, you know, because like, come on, like I want to be God. That's not what he's saying. He is God. What he's saying is like, I know, I know what will heal you and I know what will destroy you. And I know that if you put anything else central to your life that's not me, it's going to break you and everything else down. So the commandments are, are not just about individual piety. They're about, they're about community responsibility. Does that make sense? And so when God says like, when you honor your father and mother, it's going to be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Like, let's establish what that doesn't mean. Okay, this is not a prosperity gospel that says if you obey your parents you'll live to the ripe age of 120. Like it's not what this is saying. Because we just know there's too many cases of where that's not true. Okay, this this is not what this is saying. The context here is saying this is what will lead to a healthy community, to a healthy life. A fa- I mean, it, we just know the opposite is true like where there's just nothing but disobedience and things are out of control and parents aren't involved, that doesn't lead to health and human flourishing, does it? It leads to brokenness. It leads to the perpetuation of sin in the fall. And so God is giving a vision for what God promises as the result of obeying him and following him. But listen, he's speaking it to children. This is so cool. Paul isn't just saying, be obedient because it's right and it's what you should do be a good little Christian, keep the rules. He's he's leading these young people to obey out of trust in God's word, to orient their lives as a child around the promises of God's word. Isn't that amazing that he calls their obedience to be rooted in God's promises and God's truth? And is there a, a better vision of what our goal is as parents? I don't, I don't just want, like, well-behaved kid. That's great. That's cute. I'll take it. If it's a part of the package, I'll take it. As long as it doesn't mean that I end up with someone that keeps the rules but has no relationship with Jesus. It's a modern-day Pharisee that knows all the Bible books, that knows all the rules, that knows all the, all the behaviors that good Christians don't indulge in, and knows all the good things that good Christians do, but it's this sort of like moralism. They're not lost in their badness, but worse, they're lost in their goodness. Paul's like, that, that's not the goal of parenting. Obedience for the sake of compliance? No, it's deeper than that. My job as a parent is to lead my kids... To the conviction that God is worth being trusted. That's my job. To, I, I'm, we're just here temporarily. Do we know that? We should be, by the way. Okay? You should be temporary. We're temporary, we're like a substitute teacher. That's, that's there temporarily to play a role of, of until you can walk with Jesus independently, until you can know his voice, I'm here to be that voice for you. I'm here to temporarily stand in the gap and to do everything I can to eventually slip out of the way so that you can trust in him and walk with him. This is the goal. The goal of parenting is spiritual obedience. It's discipleship. It's to live in such a way that I say God's word is true and I'm going to orient my life around his promises. That's my greatest joy. There's, As it said in, in 1 John, there's no greater joy than to see that my children walk in the truth. That they see this truth and they live according to it. And the job of parenting is to achieve and to pursue that goal. Um, Here's how it says in the Psalms. Here's a long Psalm. Psalm 78 uh, gives parents the, the calling and the objective of transferring the truth of God to the next generation in this way. Uh, Give ear, O my people, to my law, Psalm 78. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. This is just beautiful Hebrew poetry, uh, communicating some real profound things. Verse 3, which we have heard, things that we've heard, I love this, and known. and, And we know these things because our fathers, our generation before, they're the ones that have told us and taught us. And here's what we're, I love, this is like a commitment, like a covenantal vow. We will not hide them from our children. Telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength. I love the complexity of this. Tell tell the praises of the Lord. Describe how strong God is, how wonderful the things that he's done. By the way, you need a personal testimony to pass this on. You have to be able to say, I don't just know some of the verses, but I've seen God work in my life. And let me testify to you who he is and what he's done. For he established a testimony in Jacob, and he appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. So so there's two things that God establishes in the community of faith. A testimony of how he works, what he does, and his law, which speaks to what? His character speaks to his holiness. This is what God gives every community and every generation. He's like, here's what I've done, and here's what I'm like. And he says it's the job for every community of faith to to make this known to their children. That the generation to come might know them. That the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children. Isn't that a great vision? That they may set their hope in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. It may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Do you see the responsibility placed on one generation to take serious the task of parenting? To see that you have one shot, you have one window to work. And in that window, let's go back to this verse. As a parent, I want to communicate to my child, what God has done and who he is in such a way that they put their hope in him. That's what Paul is speaking about here, that they trust his word and they live accordingly, that they have confidence in his word. Now, it's interesting. These are the two things that the psalmist says we're to pass on to our children, testimony of what God has done and a law of who God is. I wanna say that there's, by the way, no better summary of who God is and what he's done than the gospel of Jesus Christ, amen? In the gospel, you see perfectly who God is, as loving and just all at the same time, yet you also see God's great work in what he's done. Um, There's a really sad scripture that contrasts Psalm 78. It's in the book of Judges. A lot of us know the book of Judges and the story here in Judges 2 that the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua all those people so here's this generation everyone had seen the great works which the lord had done they saw it with their eyes they had this per- we would say like a personal relationship with god they had evidence they had testimony they had examples they go this is like i trust in god not just because certainly hopefully because it's the thing that's that's most rational but also because it's experiential and it's true and here's my testimony here's my story and they have those it says when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers it says another generation arose after them, who did not know the Lord, his character, nor the testimony, nor what he had done for Israel. That's sad, and sad is an understatement. That is the failure to pass on the greatest gift that we could give the next generation. This is what matters most. This is what Paul would say is our goal to pursue, I mean, I'll give you one more scripture here. Jesus said it this way. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? So maybe maybe we think about this in in terms of parenting and all the goals we have for our kids. Like, I want my son to be better at golf. I do, okay? For selfish reasons, of course. Like, college is cheaper. No, but like, certainly I, I I want Judah and Evie and Penny to grow socially. I want them to find their purpose and live into it. I want them to be a blessing to the world and and leave a mark. There's so many things I want for them. You know, in this season of life, how many of you guys are all day long Are you thinking about is the education of your kids? Anybody else like us? Just me, all right, a couple of you. Mostly all of you is the truth. Okay, but, and there's just so many of these goals we have for them. And Jesus is like, those are all good But what does it profit a child to gain the whole world? And not have the most primary thing that they need, the thing that's going to matter most for this life, and the thing that's going to matter most for eternity, is their own relationship with Jesus. So, this is the goal that we're to pursue. Amen? It's really simple. It's like teach them obedience, not just general obedience, behavioral obedience, not just obedience for the sake of compliance, but obedience that's rooted in the heart of discipleship, a spiritual obedience. We don't just say, do it. Why? Because I said so. We say, hey, we want to teach you to obey. We want to teach you everything else that that we want to point out in your life because it's rooted in a confidence in God and his word. And we want you ultimately to set your hope in him. Okay, that's the goal. The second thing that Paul gives us is I think that's something that's really helpful. He gives us then a gap to avoid in our parenting. The first is a goal to pursue. That we would serve our time. (laughs) That's a perfect phrase to use as a parent. We would serve our time as parents to prep our kids to have a life centered around Jesus. And in that, we would also avoid some things. There's some gaps that we need to avoid. There's some gaps that can show up in our parenting. When I use the phrase gap. I mean a space between our desire and our result. There's spaces between what we want and what we get. There's gaps, often in our character and our life. And here in verse 6, Paul describes, I believe, two gaps. One is prescribed and one is implied. But two gaps that Paul says can exist in our parenting. Uh, he says, and you, notice who, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So he goes into like a guide for what to do as a parent. But Before he goes into the guide, he gives a warning about a gap that we can have in our parenting. Uh, again, two, two gaps here. One implied, one prescribed. The, the obvious one that's prescribed is don't provoke your children to wrath. We'll talk about that in a second. Something not to do. I remember teaching this before. I taught this passage in the, in the group I was with when I said, children, obey your parents. Everyone, everyone did go, amen, you know. And then when I got to fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, it was like quiet. It's like, where are the amens, you know, for the kids? All right. That's the prescribed one. Don't provoke them to wrath. One translation says, don't exasperate them to discouragement. The other gap here, though, that we'll deal with first is a gap that's implied. Paul is speaking to parents, but in speaking to parents, he speaks directly to fathers. Prior verse, he said, obey your father and mother. But but now when he's going to speak about the responsibility of the family unit, of the parental unit, he's going to go right first to dad to establish some things about who dad needs to be in the home. And he's gonna, he's gonna remind us that dad is, and this is the implication here: the result of your parenting, the result of your kids' lives, the shaping, their form, their spiritual formation, their trust in God. It's not just something that dad needs to be involved in. <laughs> it's something that dad is gonna lead. He's speaking to dad. He's like, dad. This isn't, you can't outsource this, okay? You're not just like the provider and mom's the one at home helping the kids follow. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Fathers, bring up your children in the admonition and training of the Lord. Fathers, dads. Um, if you haven't yet, if you're a dad in the room or soon to be dad or even a was dad, all right? You still are, but you know. I want to highly recommend the book The Intentional Father by John Tyson. It came out a couple years ago. This is like a must-read if you're a dad. I'm going to say that. Big statement. Must-read, okay? Um, in chapter 2 of The Intentional Father, John Tyson describes the five kinds of fathers. He gives five categories of fathers. He starts with like the father that none of us truly want to be, and then he lands the father that we all desire to be and what our families need. He starts with the irresponsible father. The irresponsible father is one who has literally zero involvement with his kids, which is, if it's foreign to you, I just want to say it's not foreign to statistics in our culture. Fathers who are literally have zero involvement with their kids. It's someone who completely bails on them to the point they don't even know who he is. This father takes no responsibility, provides no child support, contributes nothing meaningful into the lives of his children. That's the irresponsible father. We don't want to be the irresponsible father. The next level is the ignorant father. So this is the kind of father that has no idea what he's doing, which is really all of us. But, like, you're not this guy, I promise. I pray. Not only does he have no idea what he's doing, but it's not like a cute, naive ignorance. It's a destructive ignorance. You know know what word sounds a lot like ignorant? It's the word ignore, where you neglect your responsibility, and you continually wreak havoc in the lives of your children even without realizing it. He doesn't know anything about being a father. And here's the key. He doesn't try to learn or improve. Because of all this, he ends up projecting his own brokenness into the lives of his children. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen ignorant fathers act this way. But yet they don't care to get better because at least they're in their kids' lives, whatever they think that means. Oh, cool, you didn't bail on your family? What do you want, like a cookie, right? Like what what do you want for that? That's your role to be there physically, but, but there's so much more than that. It's almost like you go, well, I'm not like those dads that aren't there. It's like, yeah, but you're there, but you're not there. So that's the ignorant father. Then there's the inconsistent father. This is where it starts to get convicting to people like you. That's a sarcasm. Okay. The inconsistent father who is torn is torn by personal ambition. He has the capacity of doing better at this fathering thing, but instead he prioritizes his own job, career, and hobbies. These binges of selfishness are often followed by guilt and feeble attempts to fix everything, but there's no stable sense of security or identity passed on to his kids. It's the inconsistent father. Then it gets to the involved father. We're getting closer to who we want to be. This type of dad shows up at his his kids' sporting events, takes the time to put filters on their devices, He gets a lot of things right, but because of the busyness of life and the failure to ask the right questions, he never seeks to understand specifically who his children are and why God gave them to him. This is a noble dad, but this is one who's haunted by the sense that there's something more that God has called them to as a father. Another layer or level in their parenting. And then let's talk about the dad we all want to be, the intentional father. The intentional father is deeply invested in discovering who his children are and how he can help them reach their redemptive potential. He seeks to understand the children God has given him and wants to form them into young persons who can fulfill their purpose. He sees parenting, listen to this, as central to his call before God and does it with all of his might. Like, I could fail in everything else, but if I succeeded as a dad, I've succeeded. Conversely, I can succeed in everything else. But if I fail at home, I've failed. That's the concept here. This kind of father leaves a multi-generational blessing in the lives of his children. The intentional father. This is a gap that we, of course, as dads, want to avoid that Paul is speaking to. But then there's one that's not just implied here. There's a, there's a gap that's prescribed. Uh, Paul speaks to fathers, emphasizing their role in this, but then he speaks to a, a specific thing that we are to avoid as moms and dads in our parenting. It's a kind of parenting style. And I I use the phrase gap. Like the idea of gap is like it's keeping you from doing the thing you're supposed to do. But Paul's like, it's so much worse than that. There's a kind of parenting mode and style that not only does it not further the purposes of God, but it actually frustrates the purposes of God and it's counterproductive. So much so that it's not just that you don't get them from point A to B, but you send them in that direction away from God. I mean, that's a a scary thought to think of, that there's a way to parent. You can parent in the name of Jesus in such a way that you frustrate the purposes of God in your child's life. Come on, this is not hard to think about because we've seen this, haven't we? Maybe we've experienced this to some degree. That there's a way to parent in such a way that you provoke your children to wrath. That's what he says not to do. Train them up to know Jesus, right? Like he's not like sacrifice that, teach them to obey, okay? He's not saying like only be their friend, don't be their parent. He's not saying don't be a good parent, don't be authority. He's saying don't do it in such a way that you exasperate them to discouragement. I think that's, that's the NLT version in Colossians It says the same thing, but don't exasperate your children, otherwise they'll lose heart. One translation says, don't exhaust your kids, otherwise they'll give up and quit. Isn't that sad to think about? A kind of parenting, that, instead of provoking the opposite, which is joy in the Lord, it provokes a sense of anger. Uh, now, there's so many, I, man, I could probably spend, a, a you know me, I could spend a year-long series, I, that's, that's slight sarcasm, unpacking all the different ways that I think as parents we can cause more harm than help in our parenting, but here's... A couple, a couple ideas about how we can, some gaps we need to avoid in our parenting, hypocrisy, inconsistency, some proximity issues, and our tendency issues. Just a couple thoughts about how we can cause more harm than help, how we can, instead of further God's purposes for our kids, we can frustrate them and actually end up with kids that are bitter towards us and God. Like, we don't want that. How can we do that? Well, first, let's just talk about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is, is the nature of hypocrisy is to pursue the goal of your children's obedience while not pursuing obedience to God yourself. Which they notice, don't they? Judah's my mentor, by the way, in case you're wondering. Okay, personal mentor. Um, The idea of being a hypocrite is not that you sin in front of them. Because that means you're a human being. To be a hypocrite is to lack authenticity in your pursuit of God, in your pursuit of what you want them to pursue. So, so to be a hypocrite is to hold them to this high standard, like obedience matters, God's ma- God matters, faith matters, Jesus matters. And then when you fall short, not if, but when you fall short of that, what do you model? How much does it matter? Is there repentance? Is there humility? Do they see in you a pursuit for obedience to God? I, I mean... Here's the question we have to ask. If your faith, the extent of your faith in relationship with God, became the extent of your kid's faith, would you be satisfied? If your faith and your relationship with God, if it was capped at yours, that's the extent, would you be satisfied? And I have to say, no. (laughs) I I want them to have so much more, but here's the hard reality. You can teach what you know, but you will reproduce who you are you will reproduce who you are. And, and so if at home we have this, like if, if on the outside we model this pursuit of God and we're a Christian family and we, we, do all, we check all the right boxes, but there's no genuine, authentic pursuit of God. There's no repentance. Like I feel like the greatest gift I've given my kids is not the, a perfect example at home. It's like how to repent when you do bad things because dad falls short. And to model that and say, hey, here's let me teach you how to be a failure in life. Like I want, I want to teach you how to be a success, but I want to teach you how to fail well as well. And learn repentance. Authenticity is, is so important. So hypocrisy can provoke our kids to wrath. And they go, what? Just get bitter. It's like, like the Pharisees that are binding people with laws that they're not willing to do themselves. Um, I think inconsistency is another one. This is a convicting one for our household. Uh, when I say inconsistency, I mean like inconsistency in your messaging, in your standards. So if hypocrisy is a lack of authenticity, we'll say that inconsistency is a lack of structure. Kids have a conscience, but they need parameters to work that stuff out. They, they need some level of consistency. Um, there needs to be consistent expectations, values in your home. Like, what do we do? What don't we do? How do we act? How don't we act? That doesn't mean they're going to act how you want them to act, okay, or do how, how, what, what we want them to do, but there needs to be consistency in our parameters. If you're anything like me, what happens a lot in your parenting is, here we go, you get tired i just got tired saying that okay you just get tired you know what i'm saying and so like because i get tired a lot of times instead of like my family and our family like leading our family to like follow the parameter and like the, it's like the structure i can i can be as consistent as i am not tired you know what i'm saying and that doesn't work. And usually what happens with me as a parent is, is I tend to, like, teeter back and forth from extremes when I'm tired. You know what I mean? So it's either, like, hyper-permissiveness. Uh, just like, oh, whatever. Just don't bite each other. Right? Just like, you could punch each other. Not in the throat. Judy, you can't hit your sisters unless they hit you first. Okay? Like, whatever. Oh, my gosh. Referee. Or I get a little energy and all of a sudden I get hyper-legalistic. Go to your room, okay? The tone, you know that voice? That becomes natural and instinctive. And it's like we teeter back and forth. I can do this day to day based on how tired I am, a lack of consistency. And this, I've seen it, this will confuse the heck out of a kid. It's like, can I do this and get away with this or not? It's like, okay, inconsistency. And I wanna say too, like, Parents of teenagers, I see this a lot as a youth pastor. Here's what I saw a lot with parents. They were hyper-permissive when their kids were young, and now they're trying to make up lost time. And so they're like, well, if, I just, if I'm hyper-extreme now and I'm a stealth bomber helicopter parent in their life, then I can make up for all the, it's a ba- you, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. So we teeter from hyper-permissiveness to hyper-legalism, and we need more structure. Can I just get an amen to that? Okay. I hope this is helping. Um, my failures. I hope my failures are able to bless someone. Okay. Another thing is I think we can, we can cause, we can be counterproductive in our parenting when we have proximity issues. And I just kind of alluded to this. So we'll start with like the most obvious one. There's a difference between being physically um, present but emotionally absent. Do you know what I'm saying? to be actually emotionally present, to be attentive. I think this is a big aspect with with proximity. Just to be physically there is not enough for our kids. Our kids, so I'm really convicted about this because of my unhealthy relationship with my phone, and um, it's serious. I mean, I'm I'm serious. Um, I'm asking God to help me with this. I've been working on some things here with my family, Brittany and I, but Our kids know when they're second. They know it. They know when the phone's more important. They know when the video's more important. They know when the communication. They also know when they're first, don't they? Just, they just know. They know when they're valued. They know when they're put first. So there's something here to proximity, that you're really there. There's also something to proximity where it's like you, need to take, you just need to back up a little bit. Too close. You're smothering them. Let them be a human. Give them a little space. Let them have doubts and questions. It's not about compliance, it's about authenticity. Give them some space. Let them work things out. Let them struggle through some of their challenges, okay? Uh, and lastly, we'll say tendency. And uh, one, one of the other ways that we can, we can cause our, our children to be provoked to wrath in our parenting is we, natu- here's the truth all of us as children naturally adopt the tendency of our parents. And we just tend to parent the way we've been parented because it's all we know. And we just assume, well, that's, my, I just, we just assume we have great parental operating systems built in. Like, I don't need an update, you know, <laughs> or an upgrade. I got this. I am pretty good parents. Or I didn't have their parents. That's what we can think, right? If I didn't have their parents, I'm, it's like no parent is a perfect parent. So there's tendencies we have to evaluate. Um, this is a really good list that I, I read online from Britt Merrick that describes some of the ways that we can have tendencies in our parenting that frustrate our kids. Um, this sort of unhealthy provoking makes unreasonable demands on the child. It's an interesting thought. Like has expectations for them that are way too steep and high, and they're usually, again, reactive. Humiliating a child You can provoke them to wrath that way with those tendencies. Maybe, that's what, maybe you're like, that's what I experienced, and so we tend to project that stuff as a a tactic to get them to obey as we humiliate them. That sort of parenting, it also manifests no loving understanding of a child's unique personality. That's so helpful. That every kid is different. They have a unique personality that that not all of your kids are going to be parented the same way. Any parents know this? And so we got to be mindful. we got to love them enough to know them. (laughs) Uh, It's also marked by constant nagging or nitpicking, and it irritates them by perpetually fault-finding. This is, these are some tendencies. I, I hope none of these resonated with you as much as they tended to with me, okay? And there's a tendency to look at these and go, yeah, okay, I can do that. I can think that way. I can act that way. And I want to be more like the Lord. And so we close with this last realities, these final realities here of this verse, and it's a guide to employ. We see a goal to pursue. We see a gap to avoid in our parenting. We see some gaps, the need for dad to step in and step up, the need for both parents to parent in such a way that's not counterproductive, frustrating God's purposes, but productive and furthering God's purposes in their lives. And then Paul ends with like a a really great guide. So he says, here's what not to do. Don't provoke them to wrath. Don't exasperate them to exhaustion, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. That's the call. That's the guide. So so, so the vision is that they would be disciples of Jesus, and my life as a parent in their life would be spent on helping them put their hope in God and trust him and follow him and walk with him. And then the guide to do that is Paul actually, it looks like two, but Paul gives three things. He says, bring them up. It's an intentional Greek word he uses in the training and admonition of the Lord. Uh, the word bring them up is, uh, is, is one Greek word and it literally means to nourish or cherish. It's the same Greek word that's used in chapter five to speak of how a husband should care for his wife. So bring them up raise them up it speaks of loving affection loving affection it then says to bring them up in the training of the lord this word training another uh understanding of this word in the greek it literally just means uh to to be trained for obedience or discipline to be disciplined toward an end to bring correction and the third idea there is to parent our kids in such a way that we admonish them um and the greek word there literally means correction um It actually literally means to put something before their mind continually is the idea. So here's the three things that Paul says need to be involved in how we parent. Here's the guide. We offer loving affection. We offer loving correction. And we offer loving instruction. Dad has to lead the charge. Dad has to be more than just involved. He's central to the result of this. There's a team dynamic to work out here as well. The curriculum, small group stuff is great for that. You should get into that, all right? But then as we do that, we want to make sure we're not provoking our kids to wrath and how we parent, but instead we're pursuing to love them with affection, correction, and instruction. Like the first one even is is just helpful, affection, to nourish them is the phrase there, to care for them. Like, listen, your kids need your affection. Kids need to be hugged, guys. They need to be kissed. They need to be cherished. They need to be loved. They need to be nurtured. Think of the prodigal son and his father, which was the picture of God running to his son, wrapping his arms around him. You're like, well, I'm not really an affectionate guy. You know, I didn't really get any affection from my dad. You get affection from your heavenly father who loves you, who welcomes you. And share that with your kids. Love them, cherish them. Do everything that you can to mirror how your father loves you in how you love them, affirm them, speak about their identity, tell them you love them, (laughs) I love you, you're such a gift to mom and dad, speak words of affirmation and affection over them, also he says, here's another guide, correction, okay, it's not all lollipops and butterflies, it's not all you're awesome and there's no kid like you and there'll never be another kid like you, I mean, yes, you're unique, but in your uniqueness, there are some things that I'm going to lovingly correct in your life. Proverbs says, if I don't discipline my kid, I hate them, is actually what Proverbs says. If I love my kid, I'm gonna correct them. Now, there's a, there's a wide range of tools for that. There's, there's exhortation, and then there's rebuke, and there's, the book of Proverbs gives so many different ways to approach correction, setting on the right path. But, but the root of, of correction and, and lovingly doing that, I love is Hebrews 5.8, that Jesus, though he was a son, he learned obedience. It's like, that's what we're, we wanna teach our kids. And so when, when, when there's off- of course, when, when there's disobedience, we're going to bring loving correction because the father disciplines the son whom he loves. And he fails to discipline the son that he doesn't love practically. A lot of times the reason why we don't correct is because in functionality, we love ourselves more than we love them. That's what we choose to do. We choose to love ourselves and our comfort. And it's this difficult. I'd rather just lay here, sit here, or yell at you. Ain't that true? And then lastly, loving instruction. This is the last guide, is to be someone who's constantly putting the truth of God before their minds. This is not primarily the job of the church or of the kids' ministry or of the Sunday school teacher. The primary pastor in every kid's life is their parents. The primary teacher in every kid's life ought to be mom and dad, constantly putting the truth of God Before their minds, as it says in Deuteronomy, that these words which I command to you today, I love this, they shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your kids. You shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. I love this. Everywhere you go, in every every part of your day, looking for opportunities to put the truth of God before their minds. When you wake up, when you're on the road, when you're going for walks, when you're at the dinner table, right before bed, that tends to be a good rhythm for us. Because in the morning... It's not as good, okay? And so right before bed is some of our our, our best time to put God's truth before our minds, to put our day before us and go, what happened today? Let's talk about this and let's see how it comes to bear on on who we are in Christ. Now, uh, I'll close uh, with bringing the band up here. And as we close, I want to remind us of a gospel that we want to trust in here. Wherever you fall in this conversation about parenting, the question needs to go. Whether you're a soon-to-be parent, maybe a future parent, maybe you're seasoned, an empty-nesting parent, maybe you're in it as a parent. Maybe, as we talked earlier, we talk about this reality of, of the pain that comes through being a child, being a parent. Wherever you fall into this, after hearing a message like this and looking at verses like this, the question becomes, okay, well, where do I put my trust. Where am I putting my trust right now? Am I putting my trust in myself? Because I'm not like my dad. I'm not like them. Am I putting my, my trust in my ability to do better? And, or am I struggling to trust at all? Am I failing to trust in in any hope whatsoever because all I know is brokenness, all I know is pain. And I love that here, even in Ephesians, the gospel gives us a third way. It gives us a, a message of good news to trust in no matter where you're at in the parenting relationship this morning. And here's the good news. You have a perfect father in heaven. Behold what manner of love the father has bestowed on you and I, that we get to be called children of this perfect Father in heaven. Paul has been unpacking this central truth. In Ephesians 1, he's like, You've been adopted into his family. He's your dad now. And if we want to parent like God, we need to be parented by God. We need redemption there, we need restoration there. We need to trust in that gospel that says, Come be a child of a perfect father where you find not only the example of how he's called you to live as a parent, but you find the father you've been looking for, that you were created for, that has never failed you, that is always good, that has always been to you what you needed. And there's a fullness in that. No matter how awesome your dad was, there's a fullness in finding God as my dad, my Abba Father, myself as his child, I see the way he parents me, that he doesn't fault. Aren't you glad God doesn't fault-find with you all the time? nitpicking? At you. He doesn't provoke us to wrath. He softens our hearts with his love and his care and his grace. He's a father that demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinning, he sent his son Christ Jesus to die for us. The only perfect child took on our imperfection so we could say, our Father in heaven.